pay attention, ask the questions, listen to the stories. And I think that's just, that's the starting point. Mm -hmm. And right now I feel like what's happening is that that's been just cut off. It's like, we're not going to, we're not listening to anybody's stories. We just, you know, we have our narrative, our perspective in, in often it's based politically. And so therefore we're not going to entertain a notion that somebody else is having an alternative experience. And what does that mean? Like, I don't have the answers to, except for pointing people to the Lord. You're listening to God Hears Her, a podcast for women where we explore the stunning truth that God hears you, He sees you, and He loves you because you are His. Find out how these realities free you today on God Hears Her. Welcome to God Hears Her. I'm Elisa Morgan. And I'm Erin Eddy. Have you ever experienced moments or words that have personally hurt you? Do you feel traumatized by anything in your life right now? Today we want to talk with licensed counselor Sheila Wise-Rowe about trauma and about how we can work to heal in the aftermath of experiencing it. We want to specifically focus on racial trauma and how we can work to be better as a community of believers. Unfortunately, I couldn't make it for this conversation, but Sheila is incredible. She has been counseling people for over 25 years, and she has written many books, including Healing Racial Trauma. So let's jump into this powerful conversation with Sheila. Can you just tell everybody, who who is Sheila? You know, where are you from? Who are you? How'd you get to be you? What else is happening in your life? Uh, just give us a little a little bio here. I was born in Boston, raised in Boston, and thought I'd never leave Boston. Um, however, um, things uh, shifted, and I'll go into that a little bit more. But so my um, upbringing, uh, I was the second oldest of nine kids. Raised with both of my parents. My parents separated, then it was my mom. And during the civil rights period, and also uh, being a part of busing. So, court mandated busing in Boston. This was in the um, 70s. So, and, how old were you in that busing season that you experienced? Yeah. So, busing started in 74. So, I was in middle school by then. Mm. So, I think maybe sixth grade. So, no. Seventh grade, mm-hmm. there was a program called Operation Exodus, and I was a part of that program, and that predated court mandating busing. So there was a small group of black students who were basically bused to white schools. Operation Exodus was an, an attempt to try, to try to get better education for black students who really were experiencing lots of deprivation in the public school system. Mm. So I was one of those. And and I would say that that early experience really did mark a lot of my perceptions of myself and and others, because I did not grow grow up in a community that was, you know, it was mixed. It wasn't. It was predominantly Black. By the time I reached school, the neighborhood had shifted and changed. So it really felt like I was a fish out of water. Mm. I was in this whole new environment. And I think for everyone, including the teachers and the students, they had never really engaged with a Black person before. And so there was a lot of those experiences were deeply troubling and painful. Mm. And now in looking back, I can see, okay, where 
the origins of some of the racial trauma that I carried, where that came from. Sheila, were you the only Black student in your school, or were there other Black students? The bus probably had about maybe 20 kids Mm -hmm. or 25 kids. Mm -hmm. I think there may have been like one other Black kid in my class. Wow. But for the students, they really, this was totally new for them. And so even some of the experiences, some were innocent in terms of curiosity, Mm. and then others were pretty vicious. Mm. And that came from students as well as teachers. And so, yeah, so I went through that, then went through busing, Mm. official busing, Mm -hmm. and that was a really horrible, turbulent time in Boston. And so I and my siblings were, some of us were in the same school, others went to other schools where it was even worse. So I went from that to, okay, preparing to go to college out of high school and having to deal with guidance counselors saying, oh, don't apply to the school. You know, you're not going to get in. I did get in. So I got into Tufts and I graduated from Tufts Mm. with a a BA and and then went on to get my master's. I was not a believer, Hmm. actually. Hmm. Like I knew God existed. I did believe that. And I did have experiences of Sunday school, predominantly at my aunt's church, but not a whole real sense of, well, what does it look like to actually be a believer and walk that out in my life? And so my college years, even high school, I was not. Mm. And it wasn't until I graduated from college and then a couple of years after that of really coming to to Christ. How did Jesus grab you? (laughs) I was working as a social worker and I burnt out at a certain point. And and part of that was just trying to reconcile, like my heart's desire was to really empower the community I came from and the parents and hopefully reuniting parents and kids. And that was like, you know, kind of a save the world mentality that wasn't based on faith. It was just, I'm going to do this. And yeah, that never works out. So (laughs) I burnt out. And at that point, I just thought, well, what do I, I like vintage clothing and I was doing a little side hustle of selling vintage clothing. I'm going to open a vintage clothing store. So that's why not. There you go. Right. Exactly. Exactly. So I did that. (laughs) And so during that whole period, as I was healing, I still thought in some ways that like I could be in control of my life. Like, you know, I'm, I'm one of, if I just put my all into this, it's going to work. And, um, and then I just started hanging out with the wrong people and just, and particularly just a really crazy relationship with a guy who was this cocaine dealer. It was just, the mess. And yeah. so I, I went from wanting to save the world to this. And like, how, like I know how that happens for yeah, people. It's a, it's, a, it's a slippery slope. Mm-hmm. You know, it doesn't all happen at once and it's not intentional, but then you just suddenly discover, like, how did I get to this place? And it was at that point that I realized, you know what, I'm not in control. And if I'm not in control, then who's in control? Mm. There has to be somebody who's in control here. So that was the point at which I surrendered. Mm. I was watching like a show or something on TBN. I can't even think of who it was on TBN, <laughs> but it was like, it was like an altar call. And then I think oh. shortly after that, yeah. yeah, I was like, oh, okay. And I had conversations with my mom because she had, um, she had become a believer a couple of years before that, like a real strong believer. And we would have conversations about faith matters. Yeah. So that was the point. And that was 1984. Mm. And I'm hearing a lot just in this little snapshot that you've shared. And thank you for going into it. Just so much grit and also so much grist (laughs) that God would both use and develop you and shape you. 
You use the term racial trauma, and I know what that is sort of in my head as I make it up. You know, I lived, I was pretty young during those those uh, years, but I remember them. And I know as a white person, my experience is completely different. And yeah. I also grew up in Texas, which is a very different expression yeah. of the whole crisis that we were all going through. Can mm. you describe what you mean by racial trauma and even trauma to begin with? Yeah. And my heart yeah. is trying to already put a little bubble wrap around it as I'm listening to you talk about middle school. That is mm. such a traumatic time anyway. Yeah. But to go through Operation Exodus and the busing experience and then the mandatory busing experience and yeah. then being the only pretty much black student in your classes. Help us understand trauma and then racial trauma if you could. Yeah. I think it's important to note and I think this is where people get things kind of confused. The reality is that most of us have have experienced trauma in some form or another. And whether it's a minor and the, you know, it's, it's termed little t trauma, where it's something that's, it's, mm. you know, it's troubling and disturbing, but it's not catastrophic. And that versus big t trauma, which could be something like a, a major, like a major car accident or a, a death of a really significant person in your life and or some horrific types of abuse. And, and this is not to grade eight things like this is worse than the other, but mm-hmm. many of us have experienced that. And so when we come in looking at racial trauma, it's easy to kind of think, well, okay, that's so what? Someone called you an N-word. <laughs> you know, what's the big deal? Mm-hmm. Or, you know, you didn't get served in a restaurant or whatever. Well, one of the things that they've shown just in research is that multiple little T traumas have more of an impact uh, and can have more of an impact than a one big T trauma really? event. Really? Yeah. And so what you're seeing is that for... Many people in, and not just the black community, but in my book, Healing Racial Trauma, I deal with different racial groups and ethnic groups. And so what happens is that we experience big T traumas often, but it's those little ones on top of that. And it's just this compounding of it. And the weight of that has really dramatic and long-term effects. And it's not just in the present, but it's also historical. So when I talk about my own history, like that contributed to who I am, but I also have to include the experiences of my parents. Mm. You know, what they experienced, my father's, the death of his mother and father and younger brother in Virginia during a TB epidemic where there were no hospitals for black people. So then he was raised by his grandfather. Mm -hmm. And so he's coming with that baggage and his grandfather's coming with his own baggage of the past. And so all of us are affected by what has happened in the past if it's not resolved. Mm. And so we're dealing, when we talk about racial trauma, we're talking about the present as well as the past. We're also talking about vicarious trauma. So Mm. vicarious in that when we see things on TV and it's pretty horrifying, I think, to everybody, when we saw what happened with George Floyd, horrific. Mm-hmm. It has a special meaning and a deeper meaning for a black mother who's watching this man be killed before her eyes and having him cry out, Mama. It's gut wrenching mm-hmm. because it, we have thoughts about our own family members. Mm-hmm. And that's traumatizing. There are ways in which racial trauma happens when, and it may seem like, well, that's just a statue. What's the big deal? But that statue, a statue of a Confederate statue, possibly, has meaning. 
and it may have meaning to certain people and it's one of well this is part of the culture the heritage or whatever and for for black folk the meaning of that statue is very different the meaning is enslavement the meaning is who's in charge and who's superior so all of those things contribute towards racial trauma and more is more as well that is so helpful you've heard the phrase i'm sure a million times that in order to be a counselor you have to receive counseling. You know, in Absolutely. order to help others, you have to be helped. You know, because yep. hurt people end up hurting people. That's the thing. So, what was your own journey like in terms of the trauma, racial and otherwise, that you experienced growing up? And I'm sure you still do at times. What was your journey like in terms of, yeah. of the process of healing? So, I recognized very early on that, and part of the process of getting, like, you know, registered and licensed and all that was doing your own work. And so I did enter into counseling with someone. I was part of support groups. It was in those places that I really felt in the group work, it was connected uh, to not just counseling, but more inner healing. And so really Mm -hmm. like listening, what is the Holy Spirit saying? What is the Holy Spirit doing? And so that's the part that I've recognized even in my own practice. Like there's one who actually knows me, knows the person that I'm working with better than they know themselves. And so, you know, God, what is the issue here? And have seen how we can go right in to what the core issue is. And not that you can't do that in secular counseling, because you can, but it can be more protracted and long, mm-hmm. take a longer time. And do you mean like that you pray that or that you oh, yeah. ask the person that? So so yeah. you have yeah. the counselor counseling you <laughs> yes, as yes. you're counseling another. So I, for me, it was individual counseling mm-hmm. with someone mm-hmm. as well as being in a group. Mm-hmm. But the individual part was really powerful because in individual counseling, it was it was a safe space. And it was ironically, you know, a lot of the conversation right now is trying to get people who are like you. So there aren't a lot of black therapists out there. Back in the day, there was even fewer. So my therapist was this Greek woman who was amazing. That was really important for me Mm -hmm. to work through my own stuff, Mm because you're right. If Mm -hmm. without that, it ends up spilling out. And that's what I saw early on with this. I want to save the world. I I hadn't dealt with anything, really. Not my stuff. So, you know, I can relate to that, too, because I I went in to become a counselor in the earlier part of my career. And I had the hardest time figuring out my motivations. And it was through counseling that I finally Mm -hmm. realized I was really just trying to help myself. You know, and I think mm, I think yeah. most counselors have that a, a bone of that, if you will. Yeah. <laughs> yes, and, yes. And, and it's legit. It's cool. Yes. You know, we're not yeah. none of us is done. You know, but you know we have to face that. You know, and yeah. get our own help. Absolutely. Let's go a little bit deeper into the. Mm the world of racial trauma. You know, yeah. I'm a I'm an old white woman who grew up in a pretty segregated world. What can we learn? What would you share with our audience about both being on the receiving end and dear Jesus, on the giving end of traumas with our racial challenges and realities yeah. in our world? Yeah, but you know what, I think one of the key things when you're dealing with trauma, and this is really dealing with racial trauma, I certainly saw a lot of this with counseling diverse women, white as well, around sexual abuse Mm -hmm. survivors and Mm -hmm. that kind of trauma. It's often the thing about our stories. It's will you give space to actually listen to our stories? 
to listen to our journeys. And rather than cherry picking or judging whether that was a big deal or not, or finding somebody who's going to basically agree with your perspective about mm -hmm. the fact that that trauma is not big enough or a big of a deal. The first step really is, are we able to listen to one another and to validate one another's stories? And if you look at scripture, this whole notion of grieving with those who are grieving, meeting people exactly where they are, looking at scriptures around the parts of the body and the importance of all the different parts of the body. Mm -hmm. So if we're talking about believers, mm -hmm. you know, if the foot is in pain, you better pay attention to the foot. You can't ignore it. Don't pretend it's not there. Pay attention. Ask the questions. Listen to the stories. And I think that's just, that's the starting point. Mm -hmm. And right now I feel like what's happening is that that's been just cut off. It's like, we're not going to, we're not listening to anybody's stories. We just, you know, we have our narrative, our perspective in, in often it's based politically. And so therefore we're not going to entertain a notion that somebody else is having an alternative experience. And what does that mean? Like, I don't have the answers to, except for pointing people to the Lord. I'm not going to go out there and demand that someone agree with everything that I'm thinking or saying, but I want to be able to share. This is what has happened for, for me. And I want to be able to listen. I want to listen to people who are totally different from me, who have a different faith perspective, who are struggling on multiple layers. Mm -hmm. And it's hard sometimes. I think the hardest thing for me is that when there's abusive behavior that's mm -hmm. happening, then I I tend to, I struggle with my hair being on fire and <laughs> just, I'm like, <laughs> yeah. ah, right. You know, so I don't have a high tolerance for seeing someone abused. God is dealing with what's real, mm -hmm. not what's imagined, not what we want it to be, our mm -hmm. fantasy or, mm -hmm. you know, whatever. And we can label it under culture, but this is what really happened. Lord, we need your help. We need you to heal the real. We can't sweep it under the rug. There's true evidence that trauma resides in our bodies. Yeah. And you talked about multi-generational trauma residing mm -hmm. as well. And okay, you were raised by a single mom. Your, yeah. your parents split up somehow. You yeah. have nine kids in your family. Yeah. Okay, that experience of having one caregiver, a matriarch, be responsible for the whole home and everything yeah. that's going on in it in a lower income kind of, that shapes her, that shapes you, that yeah. shapes how you parent, who you yeah. choose to marry. These traumatic things, for me, it was watching my mom struggle with alcohol. It was trying to be a really big girl when my dad came to pick us up to go to a restaurant, you know, to eat our steaks while we mm. were five and six years old and mm. saw Adam and, you know, try to stuff everything down deep. These yeah. things, these, these memories that are so tangible, they go into the very fiber of who we yeah. are. How do we address them? How do yeah. we heal? How do we respectfully understand. Yeah. What do you say about helping us wrestle through to a place of better health? Yeah. The whole notion of the, you know, trauma being held in the body is then really looking at what are the ways to expel that? And I believe it's not just the body, it's also in our mind. Yes. So, you know, our emotions are tied all up in this. And so it's it's really addressing all of those different layers, like all of it, spiritually, emotionally, physically, relationally, the whole thing. And what are the pieces? And so when we look at the body, 
how to expend that. And, and that means moving. That means movement. That is one way of releasing that trauma from our bodies. Moving. Another, yeah, moving. Like and exercise. Exercising, walking, etc. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But also, you know, I believe that, you know, even in terms of prayer, in terms of worship, like being worshipful, mm-hmm. particularly in really exuberant worship, mm. there's a physicality to that That's in which awesome. there's a release. Mm-hmm. And so if you you may notice that sometimes you'll go to service and you're feeling kind of down or whatever. And, and just think about the scripture that says, God inhabits the praises of his people. Like mm-hmm. in that that release of in worship and just, and you come away and you feel like, okay, wow, that you've offloaded something. Mm-hmm. Something mm-hmm. has happened. It was an exchange that occurred. And so it's looking for those things. And it's different for different ones of us. Some people, mm. it's not that. Some people, it's jogging. Some people, it's biking. And do you like intentionally bring the trauma or is it just the physicality releases it? Well, the physicality does release it mm-hmm. to a certain degree. But I think that if there's an in- intentionality about it in terms of particularly if something is recently has occurred. I mean, some of that work has come from their kind of looking at animals in nature mm-hmm. and just how they can encounter like being pursued like a a zebra being pursued by a leopard or mm-hmm. something. And then they there's a way in which they totally like oh my gosh you know they they freeze or they try to run but then they they need to shake it off yes. and um and that that process of shaking it off mm-hmm. and just releasing it and so we can do that we can do that literally physically but we can also pray and just release that like i'm not going to carry this i'm refusing to carry this in my mm-hmm. body acknowledging the realness of what happened mm-hmm. and that's so important because we can also tell ourselves a story about it like oh that wasn't that bad and sometimes we it's called survival do that. yeah yeah yeah, 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 exactly, mm-hmm. exactly. Mm-hmm. You know, and sometimes we're not ready to face something and, mm-hmm. you know, and you can't torpedo somebody out of denial, yeah. but it just means they're not ready. Mm-hmm. But when you're ready, I'm going to let this go. I'm going to release it to the Lord. And I'm going to ask for healing. In South Africa, one of the things that there's some folk will do when someone has experienced a trauma is actually, it's like a baptism, going underwater immersion and coming back. And so I had a reader, this wonderful woman, she took that and she literally called friends together, et cetera. And she she had a very traumatic, it was an adoptee, international adoption, just a lot of pain from the past. And so they had this whole thing. It was a pastor. I mean, it was just an amazing, beautiful thing where she went under the water and she literally felt that like symbolic. It's not there's no magic in the water or anything like that, but symbolically that sense of rising to new life. Like she had, you know, she had risen to new life in Christ, but just this washing that past away. And so there are symbolic ways of doing that. You know, oftentimes I'll have people you know, if they're experiencing something and they're feeling a sense of release, just to wash their hands or wash, you know, if it's washing their minds because of there's something tangible in the symbolism of it that really helps to um, remind us mm-hmm. as we, you know, in the future, look back and go, okay, that was a moment where I really let, let this go or I really received um, something new because that's, you know, coming out of that water or washing your hands and then receiving, Lord, what is the new thing that you want to say about me? It's a marker. Uh-huh. Yeah, uh-huh. yeah. And a renaming exactly. and a re-understanding. Yes, yeah. So many rich elements, you know, as I'm processing with you, listening to stories, asking stories, you know, of, of those that you care about. So, and sharing your story, if that, if you have experienced trauma, movement, 
uh, release imaging and symbolism are so important uh, worship and prayer um, marking it um, claiming the newness that god gives us it's such powerful elements as we turn it around a little bit how can we be more aware of how we might be causing trauma in yeah. another and help us understand how we can catch ourselves become more educated become more wise and prepared so that we hopefully change some of our our habits or our ignorances for racial trauma. I think that the other piece is that, you know, a lot of what we've been talking about really is about on an individual level. It's about an individual's trauma. But having this understanding that that trauma doesn't happen in isolation, that yes, it's often interpersonal racism that causes racial trauma, but that there there are systems that are in place and that is the reality and whether you believe that or not it's true mm-hmm. so it's if you actually want to do the research mm-hmm. you will discover mm-hmm. there are many ways in which there are blocks that are set up and so just being aware like is this possibly an issue in this particular situation whatever that situation might be that there is something systemic that is going on here that needs to be addressed and particularly if you're looking at okay, how, how is the church functioning, your particular church? How is your community functioning? How do you relate to those outside of your community? What are the differences that you see? You know, is there a difference between the services that you see in your community, and it's, it's mostly white, and yet when you look at the inner city communities and you see, you know, trash isn't being picked up, schools are horrible, you know, it's just like an under-resourced, it's not even just about bad teachers, it's bad buildings, mm-hmm. bad school supplies. Whatever. When you look at those two, and you can say, okay, it's a tax issue, but it's not just that, because both of these are public schools. So why do we have this disparity? So mm-hmm. just mm-hmm. thinking through and asking yourself that question. And on a really basic level, if you're looking at a church community, who's centered in that community? Because the reality is we all have something to share. We all have mm-hmm. something to contribute. And for many instances, it's the, the BIPOC folk, the Black, Indigenous, Asian, mm-hmm. Latinx. They're kind of off to the side. And then we've got to basically figure out like how do we fit in? How do we fit into the church? What is it that can we come with our whole selves? Mm-hmm. And so to, to ask yourself, the people that are around you that are in leadership positions, are they coming as their whole selves? Or is there a way in which there's a level of code switching? That's and by good. that, yeah. you know, I mean, you know, that they basically are something else somewhere else <laughs> where they, you know, maybe they speak their language, they have certain kinds of foods, there's um, the way in which they engage, etc. And yet when they come into your space, they have to shift and change. Mm-hmm. And then they, they put have to put on a mask, as it were. And, and unfortunately, that means that there's a whole world that that white institution, church, or whatever, is not having access to. And there's a richness and there's a beauty there that is missing. Mm-hmm. And just throws back to that scripture about the whole body. Mm-hmm. Like, all the pieces of the body are important. So maybe... We have the courage to ask each other, 
what more would you be able to bring here to this relationship? What more might you bring to this responsibility, this job? What more might you bring to this gathering where we are, you know, and really listening. But then it's on all of us to be bridge builders through conversation. If it's uncomfortable, yeah, it's uncomfortable, but let's ask, let's listen, let's be patient. Let's, let's hear down to our toes. And I think the other piece too, just there also needs to be like, as a, as a person, as a black person, as a person of color, mm-hmm. like I want brothers and sisters in Christ who are more than just allies. Like they literally are sisters and brothers and, yeah. and are participating in, in, in bringing God's shalom, bringing God's justice into this world. And that requires some level of risk. It requires a tenacity and consistency and it's not a once-off it's not about just doing a march and then it's like oh i did the march you know no it's it's an ongoing thing in terms of bringing that into your church into your community into this world it takes perseverance it's a long road but we can't go oh i don't want to do this anymore Mm -hmm. we don't have the option of that as christians although it can be really hard and painful and at times we're just like i'm done (laughs) You know, Mm -hmm. but Mm -hmm. as believers, we have to persevere. And so it is so important having everyone persevering and and going in the same direction. And I acknowledge that at times it it can be really hard. Mm -hmm. You know, do I want to have the conversation where what I know to be true is like constantly being challenged? That's that's hard. I want to really empower those people who are asking questions and are open to listening. They don't even have to totally arrive. (laughs) What I have a hard time with is those who are like, no, they're just adamant. They are stuck where they are in terms of their opinions about racism and systemic oppression. And there's a lot of gaslighting going on. That's hard because as a therapist, I, I see all of those, the pain that's out there and those that are suffering. And so there's a part of me that is like I want to focus on that those who are in pain and I want to focus on the allies the white folk the sisters and brothers in Christ who are saying I I want to join in and help but I don't know how but I'm willing to learn oh I have goosebumps that conversation was amazing be willing to learn that's my biggest takeaway yep Sheila is just incredible Before we go, we want to remind you that the show notes are available in the podcast description. You can find a link for Sheila's books and her website when you visit GodHearsHer.org. That's GodHearsHer.org. Thank you for joining us. And don't forget, God hears you, He sees you, and He loves you because you are His. Today's episode was engineered by Ann Stevens and produced by Jade Gustman and Mary Jo Clark. We also want to thank Krista and Nicole for all their help and support. Thanks, everyone. God Hears Her is a production of our Daily Bread Ministries.